Comedy icon Margaret Cho and her podcast from Erios called The Margaret Cho brings you a weekly intimate conversation with an eclectic range of guests from stand-ups to drag queens to rock stars and activists. The conversations are organic, hilarious, and she never shies away from subjects like race, sexuality, or politics. You can listen to The Margaret Cho wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, you're listening to Q, the podcast for Friday, July the 17th. I'm Talia Schlanger in for Tom Power. Today, UK pop star Ellie Goulding has put out her first new album in five years. In the pop world, that's kind of a long time. And Ellie needed some time off after being super famous for most of her 20s. We talked about what that was actually like. It's hard to be famous. Uh, We also talked about Ellie sort of not recognizing the person that she becomes when she is on stage and how she's always believed in herself as a songwriter, no matter what. We also talked about the late Juice World, the super, super tragic story of the rapper that she collaborated with on one of the songs on her new album, Who Died Last Year, and uh, her reflections on his death in the context of of her fame as a young person. That's coming up. Uh, Plus, we've got David Mitchell, a master at building worlds in his books. You might remember Cloud Atlas. They turned that one into a a movie starring Tom Hanks. This one features the greatest rock and roll band in London's underground scene that you have never heard of. Uh, In his fictional world, they, they cross paths with Leonard Cohen and David Bowie, and you will feel like you have boarded a flight to Europe and also hopped in a time machine at the same time. Very welcome sort of escape right now during these times. Uh, And then we're going to revisit a conversation that I had with filmmaker Julius Ona last summer about a a movie he made called Loose, which told the story of this young black man who had been adopted from Eritrea where he was a child soldier when he was a little kid by this well-meaning white couple living in Arlington, Virginia. The movie has so much to say about race and class and privilege and what we allow people to become, what options the world sets out for people based on on who they are and where they come from. He's so articulate and quite a timely um, moment to listen back to what Julius has to say. So I hope you'll stick around for that. Show starts now. What you're listening to right now is music by the UK pop star Ellie Goulding. That's her hit, Love Me Like You Do. It earned her a Grammy nomination for Best Pop Solo Performance. You might recognize it from the film Fifty Shades of Grey. By the time that song came out, Ellie was already a star. She had toured internationally. She had a couple Brit awards to her name. She'd performed at the White House at a royal wedding. But this song and the album it appears on was another big breakthrough. She started performing sold-out shows at huge stadiums around the world. And then she did something unexpected. She stopped touring 
and writing music. It's been five years since Ellie's released an album, but now your wait is over. Her latest record is called Brightest Blue, and she joined me to talk about it. Hey, Ellie Golding, welcome to Q. Hello. Hi. Uh, so you've got That's a new... Me. Uh, that there, there it is. That's you. Um, you've got a new album called Brightest Blue. And a few months ago on Jimmy Kimmel Live, you performed from your bathroom, just you and your guitar. I just want to know in your wildest dreams when you were a young girl, did you ever imagine that one day you would be headlining a washroom for an album release? <laughs> no, I, th- I don't think any of us expected to be in this situation. I think we've all been doing things for the first time. It's been pretty bizarre. Uh, but, um, I mean, it's, yeah, I've done a lot of those performances now. Um, and I've had to really get to know technology, which I hate. Um, technology is not my friend. I mean, it is, but, like, I don't like it. <laughs> well, we appreciate you learning all that stuff so that we can see people perform from their homes. I mean, it's it's kind of cool. Uh, it's a different different way to get to know our favorite stars, that's for sure. I did one performance in front of my little bar um, where all my alcohols are. And uh, I had so many people commenting on the volume of alcohol that I had. Um, (laughs) So um, it's like, I was like, stop it. Stop looking into my living room. (laughs) Got to choose your location carefully. That's true. It's very, very revealing. Um, I want to dive in with some music from the new album. The the album has two distinct parts and, and kind of two different sounds. So the song I'm about to play is from the first part. Let's have a listen. So that song is called Power. First of all, your voice sounds gorgeous. Thank you. It's gorgeous. Um, you're singing about I'm not a material girl, um, beautiful lies on a Friday night, everything in your world feels like plastic. What were you thinking about when you wrote this song? I think I was just trying to comment on relationships of the now and how there's just the weirdest factors that now exist when it comes to meeting new people, whether it's like on Tinder or like dating sites or, you know, you meet, you see people on Instagram. It's just become such a big currency of love and meeting people and relationships that I was like, that's just so mad to me, you know, meeting people in this very strange time. Hmm. The song is called Power, and I really noticed very strongly in the first half of the album that that you are addressing the ideas of power and and control almost um, and confidence. What did you want to convey about your relationship to to power on these songs? Um, Well, I suppose um, I don't know how much of the album is like about power, but I suppose I suppose it is the idea of finding, uh, you know, kind of finding this uh, inner strength uh, where you you feel a lot more confident, um, you feel like a lot more hopeful and you kind of get to, a, I, I wrote one song on the album called New Heights, which is about just reaching new heights of elevation of feeling like you've, you know, become some, like enlightened about yourself and about, you know, love and you've reached like a, you know, very grounded time in your life. And I think that's kind of what I've, what I've done the past few years. And I'm, you know, my, in my thirties and I spent most of my twenties on tour. It still feels like I'm I'm there, you know, it still feels like I am this, like, excitable, like, 23-year-old, but at the same time, just, it kind of just went so quick, and I feel like it's, you know, 
it's uh, it's been a real whirlwind of a time. Reaching these new heights, love without someone else feels right. Love for myself in this. Well, what did it take for you to reach those new, new heights? I guess, or or feel like you've come into your own because you've spoken, I guess, about the vulnerability of, of becoming famous so young and 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 having so many demands placed on you in your 20s. So what what did it take for you to get to that that place that you're writing from now of sort of self-assuredness? Gosh, I think it took a lot of self-discovery, a lot of uh, spending time by myself and, uh, you know, quietness and uh, walks in the countryside and uh, I suppose meeting my husband and yeah, all, all these things were kind of factors of, of sort of, you know, feeling rooted again and uh, having been traveling around the uh, around the world for years um, and, you know, not really taking it all in. I finally got to a point where I got to have a break and I got to spend time in one place for more than one week. And so I could just really reflect on things and, you know, unravel them and um, really think about my experiences and and my time as a touring artist. And I really, you know, started to understand who I'd become and and you know I was proud of myself and I think I wanted to write an album that made that makes a woman just feel more confident in who they are and I talk a lot about like this thing imposter syndrome where you, you know you've struggled to sort of have confidence with what you're doing and yeah I think I'm pretty open about that stuff on the album you certainly are what does it feel like to be to be so open as you as you are Sometimes it can be a bit scary, daunting, knowing that you're putting so much of yourself out into the world. But then again, uh, I I don't like to sugarcoat things and I don't like to censor my writing. So I just write and write and then deal with the consequences later. <laughs> That's very brave. Um uh, on, on the idea of taking the reins for things, you're an executive producer of the first half of your album. So what does that mean? Just means that nothing goes past me. Uh, like, <laughs> I have to have a comment on everything. And um, I think that I just, everything is fine tuned by my perspective on, you know, how I think, how I want things to sound sonically. So it has to all go through me. Um, so yeah, you have to, you have to sort of take on a different role and be more than just the singer and the writer and you, no, I'd say it was like, you know, a collaboration between myself and my long-term uh, collaborator and writer, um, Joe Kearns. Hmm. How does that square with what you mentioned earlier about imposter syndrome? Like when, when every decision has to go by you, you're playing all these instruments, the material is so personal to you, it's so you, you, you. And then how, how, does, how does that work? Oh, well, I think that you can, you have, you know, you have to... Uh, believe in yourself and you have to stand by your own judgment and stand by your own um, decisions and instincts. Um, That usually involves having a few drinks, losing your inhibitions, and then having someone finish the song before you can decide that it's not very good or, you know, (laughs) decide that you change your mind on it. Um, I've always believed in myself as as a songwriter. I think that, you know, there'll be things that I've been less comfortable with, like performing and, uh, and um, you know the clothes I wear, or like the way I look, and it's just all all those things that sort of come with being a singer, um, being a writer that you, I didn't ever expect to have to deal with. 
So I think, yeah, I, the songwriting part is the most enjoyable part for me. I don't think anybody looking at you on stage or in any of the photographs that we've seen or the videos that we've seen would think, oh, this is a person who has a who is maybe not as comfortable as you've just expressed with the... the... I'm good at pretending. You're good at what? I'm really good at pretending. Ah, do you have to psych yourself up to pretend though? Because you also come across as very genuine. So I don't, I mean, I, I don't feel like you're putting on an act when you're out there. Oh, I most certainly am. I'm a complete crazy nutcase on stage. Um, I, I don't even recognize that person when I watch back performances. Wow. Oh, wow. Have you ever thought like, whoops, I wish I didn't do that? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's precisely why I don't often watch them back um, because it kind of cringes me out, but uh, yeah, I don't recognize that girl on stage. It's like a, I'm this really fearless woman and, you know, and then the spell's broken again as soon as I walk off stage. Hmm. Uh, but that's kind of how I've, how I've uh, always done it. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Q and I'm speaking to the UK artist Ellie Golding about her latest album, Brightest Blue. It's out now. Uh, Ellie, I want to play another song. This one is from the second half of your album. So Grenade featuring Lauv from Ellie Golding's new album. First things first, Ellie, I find something really interesting about the meter of your words in that song. Like you're almost like singing like a rapper, like time for me to stop it. Like the, the which suggests to me that when you write, you're moving in some way or you have like rhythm in you in some in some way. Is that right? Uh, I think to be honest, that that chorus is I'm singing in a way that's frantic because I can't make my mind up. So that's, you know, I, I'm literally singing the way that I'm thinking and um, I think it just summarizes the kind of indecision of, of, of what she's, you know, thinking about, which is do I break up with this guy or not? Because it's not very good for me. Um, but uh, I mean, yeah, I, I've always liked to do things a bit differently and I love to do a chorus, it's a bit weird, um, just to kind of change, change the, you know, pop game. I, I love to always move things forward and try and experiment and, yeah, I, I'm into it. <laughs> the second part of your album is made up of, of some recent collaborations, and among them is a song that you did with the late rapper Juice World. Let's let's hear a little bit of that. my guest Ellie Golding with the late rapper Juice World with a song called Hate Me. So Juice World just put out a posthumous album a week before you put out yours. Um, and he died unexpectedly last year of, of an accidental drug overdose at the age of 21. I'm wondering, Ellie, as somebody who yourself has been a young person in the music industry, you said you spent most of your 20s like dealing with, with fame. Do you have any thoughts or insights about Juice World's death. Well, for, yeah. First of all, I'm mean, listening to that just made me really sad because uh, he's so talented and 
uh, had so much more to, to offer and uh, I'm really glad that he's you know that people are able to hear other songs the unreleased songs uh, I think that it's when yeah I, I, I really pray and hope that that new artists especially in this strange climate um, of social media and trolling and I, there's just so many more factors to consider now as, as a new artist um, it's a strange like world they're coming into and yeah, I hope that they have more help than I did. And um, I think that's that's one crucial thing. I know my record label have started a new um, thing where when they sign an artist, they offer um, a counsellor or to pay for a counsellor or somebody that can they can talk to that's, um, that's uh, impartial. And then also uh, I think that with so much talk about mental health, I think record labels are having to pay attention and to be way more considerate. Also, another thing is that, my God, it is so crucial who you who you uh, hang around with. It's so it's so important that you are with people that aren't yes people, people that you trust, people that really care about you, not just care about you because you are you know you can make money or because you you know, our, our product. Um, I think that has been so important for me. I've got such good people around me that I know really care about my well-being. Uh, and you know, that there's, there's too many cases like, like juice. World. I don't know the exact specifics of what happened, but, and I know that he was close with his family. I just, I don't know who else was around. I don't know who was with him at the time. Um, it's just really sad. And I, and I hope that, you know, every new artist, has the right people around them. Mm. You said that you hope that he, you would hope that somebody like him would have had more support than you had. What, what, what do you wish might have happened differently for you in your earlier days of fame? I think mainly I wish that I hadn't been made to feel like if I didn't do something, it would be the end of my career. I think that was kind of the common thing that happened where if I didn't fly to, you know, fly to LA and then you know back to New York and then back to London in the same day that you know therefore my career would, would oh no you know this is going to ruin your career I often felt like I was just completely exhausted and depleted um but at the same time I was like well but if I don't do this and I'm going to be in trouble and so I think I think that there just has to be more you know have to be realistic about about your health and you know I lost my voice so many times because I wasn't able to look after my voice properly I was flying too much. I was in too many different places um, at once. And so uh, I think I just hope now that we you know when there's free time in an artist's diary that, that they're encouraged to take it as just time for themselves away from music, away from the strange you know, music world. Um, so, I, yeah, I, but I, I mean, I, I feel like it is changing and people are much more conscious of it now. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And we're glad to meet you where you are now. Um, I have just one more question for you. And I, I want to end on kind of a weird note. I read somewhere that you are very good at playing pranks in lockdown on your new husband. Would you share your best lockdown prank? Uh, what have I done? Uh, can you think of anything? He's actually here and he's just come in, in the background. Well, he's free. feel free to weigh in. You're on the radio. What have I, have I pranked you? This is great. This is I mean, Casper. Hey, Casper. <laughs> He's been pranking me a lot more. Okay, what's I'm his best? Him. What's his best prank? We'll, we'll go out on that. Prankster. Oh yeah. Okay. Classic. Just like like he got bought some fake bugs, and I hate creepy crawlies, and he just put them around the house, and so he'd like 
keep hearing like little shrieks of me thinking there's a massive spider in the kitchen or something. <laughs> classic, classic. Well, I wish you both well. Look out for those those bugs and, and stay safe. Thank you very much, Ellie. And congratulations on your new album. Thank you so much. Okay. Appreciate it. Everything is heightened now, it's looking so much brighter now. I was lost and now I'm found, fell off the merry-go-round. I was in the politics, obsessed with things I couldn't fix. Kissing bigger with a fist, addicted to the thrill of it. And with these colors, fainted people, changing feelings, making some kind of love. A different flavor, see the danger, feeling life change my blood. Illuminated, never shaded, see the future when I look in the sky. That's Ellie Golding with Brightest Blue off her new album by the same name. It's out everywhere now. Ellie has planned an upcoming tour through the UK and Ireland in 2021. I'm Talia Schlanger. You are listening to Q. Here are some stories we're looking at today. That is SNFU, the Canadian punk band, with their cover of Cat Stevens' Wild World. Some sad news for the Canadian punk scene. Chai Pig, the SNFU frontman, has died at the age of 57. Chai Pig, born as Kendall Chin, formed his first punk band in Edmonton in the early 80s. That group later evolved into the legendary punk band SNFU. The news of his death was confirmed by Dave Bacon, the longtime bassist for the band. In a Facebook post, Dave said, quote, On behalf of Ken's family, to his punk rock family, it breaks my heart to say this, but our beloved friend has left this mortal coil just a short while ago. He's now at peace. May he live in our hearts and memories forever. Starry, starry night Paint your palette blue and gray What a gorgeous song, right? That's Vincent by Don McLean, a tribute to painter Vincent Van Gogh. If you've ever swooned over that tune and you have an extra million dollars lying around, this is your day. The original handwritten lyrics for that song are up for sale. The rare documents dealer based in Los Angeles says the lyrics are scrawled across 14 pages, complete with half-erased words and late edition lyrics. The dealer hopes the new owner will donate the manuscript to the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. The asking price starts at only one and a half million dollars. Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with, from something else, is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts.
I'm Talia Schlanger, in for Tom Power. Deep in the underground rock scene of Soho, London, from the dimly lit basement stages, the band Utopia Avenue formed in 1967. They combined folk, R&B, and psychedelia. They made it onto the pop charts. They crossed paths with David Bowie, the Grateful Dead, and Leonard Cohen. Now, if you're sitting there right now and scratching your head and thinking, why have I never heard of Utopia Avenue? Well, don't be too hard on yourself. They never existed. This is a completely fictional band from the mind of the novelist and screenwriter David Mitchell. His new book is also called Utopia Avenue, and over its 700 pages, David charts the course of the band in incredible detail. This isn't the first time he's created such a vast universe for his readers. David's novel Cloud Atlas was adapted into a film that starred Tom Hanks. His book, The Bone Clocks, was longlisted for the Booker Prize. He's also a writer on the upcoming Return of the Matrix movies. And he joined me from his home in County Cork, Ireland. David Mitchell, welcome to Q. Thank you very much. It's great to be here, Tanya. I'm glad to have you. This book is a wild, wild ride, and it's so vivid. So congratulations. I really enjoyed reading it. Thank you. You can't see me blush, but uh, you'll have to take my word for it. Good. Well, tell me about your relationship with the music that you uh, focus on in the book, the music of the late 60s. What drew you to set the story in the years before you yourself were born? The music. uh, It's there in your question. The music's great. Um, It was so new, so innovative. The album gets invented in 1967 with Sgt. Pepper's. Yes, there were albums before, but they were storage containers really for songs. Just the idea that an album could be an artistic unit in its own right, a narrative, a journey, uh, a portrait gallery. Um, That was was from that year. That was from June. Um, and, And because of that, um, in, in Amazon review terms, uh, lots of three-star bands suddenly started making four-star or even five-star albums. Um, and and, and uh, it, it's as if the bar just got raised. Um, there's some wonderful music from that time. If you could conceive of it, then for a while at least, there would, there'd be a record company somewhere willing to take a punt on you hmm. uh, and you could actually record it. It's hard to imagine people like, Frank Zappa ever having a shot uh, at, at, at any other point in musical history, apart from then, uh, it's, there was just this magic window, which of course was reflected in uh, what was happening in society at large. Um, the late sixties, the counterculture blossoming for a while, and just the um, enough people had accumulated. A critical mass was there uh, of people who believed that if you wanted it badly enough, if you wished it intelligently enough, then you really could reboot society and and um, build utopia right here. Culturally, the period of the mid to late 60s has such a hold on our imagination. Um, can you pinpoint what you think is at the heart of that fascination? I'll have a go. Uh, it might be something to do with idealism. Um, and maybe the first counter-revolutionary response to that idealism. I think that's a uh, a fascinating narrative. Um, We are a jaded age. We're a sceptical age. We Conspiracy theories run the show because they they applaud a kind of machine gun scepticism. I think that's a reasonable description of the age we're in. And because of that, we're somewhat hungry and nostalgic for a time when this wasn't true, where you could actually be one of those, um, be amongst that critical mass of believers um, who think that 
by demonstrating, by activism, you can rebuild society um, the way you want it to be. And of course, that never goes away. Uh, this this goes under the surface for a while. And then, as we've seen in the last few weeks, in fact, this is a, a very moot time to be having this conversation. This flare of sixtism just cracks the ground and whooshes up again. And things do get changed. Uh, the narrative of the world is demonstrably mutating the whole time. And it is demonstrably up for grabs. Hmm. Uh, and so... I think there's an attraction for a time when this was on the surface for quite a long time. And although, yes, it, the world wasn't recast and rebooted and recalibrated in a more idealistic way, at least glimpses of utopia became visible. And that's actually where utopia is. It's in glimpses. Uh, literally, of course, etymologically, the word means nowhere. Right. Uh, all of us lot live in places with zip codes and postcodes. Uh, i.e. somewhere hmm. but as long as there's a glimpse as long as notionally a better world is possible that's enough to continue to hunt for it and look for it and maybe painstaking step of progress by step of progress um that was a clumsy sentence cut and maybe step by step reform by reform painstaking act by painstaking act uh this utopia can can be approached never reached but approached mm. uh it's the momentum that counts it's the it's the it's it's the journey that matters so david you uh in the book utopia avenue you you weave these real figures from rock and roll music history in with the fictional lives of the characters that you've created and and in one of the moments in the book i don't want to give too much away but your characters spend some time uh at 710 ashbury avenue in the grateful dead's house and they encounter uh jerry garcia who kind of says what you what you've said i guess about the power and the spirit of the 60s so beautifully that i was wondering if i could ask you um to, to read it if you've got the book there right uh so <laughs> listeners at home you have to imagine that i'm not this uh nasal english guy but uh but a kind of deep rich booming californian accent uh which is an impossible thing to imagine but do your best jerry strums his guitar every third or fourth generation is a generation of radicals of revolutionaries we my friends are the bottle smashers we release the genies we run riot get shot infiltrated bought off die go bust sell out to the man sure as eggs is eggs but the genies we let loose stay loose in the ears of the young they whisper what was unsayable hey kids there's nothing wrong with being gay or what if war isn't a patriotism test, but really dumb? Or why do so few own so goddamn much? In the short run, not a lot seems to change. Those kids are nowhere near the levers of power. Not yet. Oh, but in the long run, those whispers are the blueprints of the future. Thank you for that, David. That's so vivid. The blueprints of the future. That's David Mitchell reading from his new book called Utopia Avenue. So along with Jerry Garcia, whose voice you've written in for this book, you also bring in um, people like David Bowie and Janis Joplin and Leonard Cohen, and you even write lines of dialogue for them. Uh, 
Why was it important for you for real musicians to be a part of the fabric of the world that you were creating in this book? I wanted the fabric to be realistic. It was a relatively small scene. Everyone knew each other and it would have been unrealistic if they hadn't been there. Uh, plus they're really cool people, uh, plus uh, there's the dramatic irony. Uh, readers will know a lot about them. They'll know much more about them than the characters themselves know about them because we get to know what their future is. We get to know, we know when they're going to die. Uh, they don't, and there's something quite poignant and magnetic about that. Um, and, oh, they were such interesting people in reality. Uh, they are instantly interesting characters I think or at least I'd have to work really hard to make them boring um and uh why would I want to do that anyway so uh so there's three reasons for you. I suppose there's also just the sort of the bird watchers uh throb of recognition just the joy of oh I know you um yeah they have to be there for oh sorry go they, ahead. They, oh, no, no, uh, just super quickly they have to be there for more than that um otherwise it is just bird watching they um they can't be there for such a major thing either that I end up in alternate history and I write whole chapters for these real people that never happened because they're not my toys to co-opt. But there's a Goldilocks spot somewhere in the middle where their presence is major and influential enough, say, just to change the trajectory, not of a chapter, but of a scene. Hmm. Maybe they give some information. Maybe they take part in some dialogue that changes one of the fictional characters' views of something. So... So those are my guiding principles, really. You're listening to Q, and I'm talking to David Mitchell, who's written a new book called Utopia Avenue. Your best-known book might be Cloud Atlas, which was adapted mm. into a movie starring Tom Hanks. Uh, and the movie was directed by the Wachowski sisters. They're the sibling team behind The Matrix. So, David, you are listed as one of the screenwriters for the upcoming Matrix 4 film, which just resumed production in Germany. I have to ask you, I don't know how much you're able to tell me. Can you tell me anything about the process of writing The Matrix 4? Uh, the process, yeah, fine. Uh, what happens in the film, I really can't because uh, they have entertainment lawyers and I don't know if, if you've ever met them, but they are scary. You really don't want to cross an entertainment lawyer. Uh, uh, but yeah, uh, the process, um, Lana asked uh, myself and another American novelist, Alexander Hamon, uh, if we'd like to participate. We, uh, we're friends from before and, uh, and we both said we'd love to. So... Uh, Christmas before last, uh, Lana and Sasha and um, and the families decamped uh, here in Clonakilty in West Cork, and we spent a uh, spent three or four weeks in in the conference room in a hotel down by the sea and worked through worked through the film. Um, the film was about eighteen, ninety, a hundred good ideas. You need about that many, and you put them all on cards, and with luck, each one's about a minute. Uh, in hmm. film time and you arrange them on a giant magnetic board with little magnets uh, to keep everything in place and and it was a it was it was great fun um novelists of course we work on our own in rooms for three or four years never meeting a soul we don't have colleagues that's the point we never work with anybody all the decisions have to be made about a narrative and that's what a narrative is just many 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 macro through to micro decisions that they all have to be they all have to be made by us uh when you're in a team of course you can throw a a, a half-baked idea into the writer's room for some reason that none of us can remember we refer to ourselves as the pit 
and I'll do it in this conversation as well. You throw a half-baked idea into the pit and you can just watch the conversation start to cook it through properly and then it becomes a completely baked idea by the end of it. And it's such, it's, I, I can't tell you how much, just how fulfilling it is to be a part of that process. Um, yeah, it's one of the most fulfilling creative experiences of my life. Wow. I hear the joy in your voice as you're talking about it. Um, the Matrix story is certainly very well known and very well loved to to audiences. Um, yeah. <laughs> deep deep, yeah, deep uh, breath. <laughs> uh, um, I, I, we, we all have a great sense of responsibility. Um, it's not our world. We didn't make it. We certainly don't want to be uh, in charge of anything negative happening to it. But, um, but then... Uh, it's too good to just sit in a glass box for the rest of forever as well. It's, it's, it's a living thing. And to, um, to take up some of the older characters to see how the 20 years between then and now might have influenced and affected them. You can't see me, but I'm grinning like the Cheshire cat, just, uh, (laughs) just remembering it. I can hear it in your voice. And you know what? I know I'm not I'm not pressing you on giving too much away, but I do want to know what the biggest challenge was for you in adding to this well-loved story. In a sense, this wasn't a challenge because Lana had the idea. Uh again and 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 um I'm talking about something I can't really talk about too much uh regarding a film that nobody has yet seen because it hasn't been made yet. Hmm. However, it wasn't a challenge. It was that Oh my lord, that is so clever! Whatever emotion can uh, capture the whoosh of that? Ah, that's just ingenious! Just all those light bulbs going off at once, uh, almost all of them Lana's. I have to give credit where credits due. Um, uh, the challenge was doing justice to all of those light bulbs, those those, those beautiful light bulbs. It, it, it's a, it's just an ingenious installation of a film. I'm getting a bit poetic aren't I but that's kind of how I feel was lovely what do you think it'll be like as a writer to see this on the screen when it comes out but there's nothing quite like it you've written some lines months ago years ago and suddenly you see them being said by Keanu Reeves kind of right there uh, on the screen and you remember the day you wrote them uh, mm. So you, you sort of zoom back in time. You maybe zoom back to the variations you worked through before you got through to the final formula that you wanted to keep. And you also recognise just the size of the team that made the scene happen. All we did, all the writer does, is to write the lines. Now, it's a fairly large all, but compared to the size of the iceberg that makes this scene happen on the screen in front of you, it's, it's, it's a pretty small iceberg tip. Uh, all the, well, the actor, uh, the designers, uh, the CGI people, uh, the costume people, the makeup artists, the hairstylists, uh, the dialect coaches, um, 100, 200, maybe 300 people worked to make the scene happen. Uh, some might have had jobs that you wouldn't necessarily associate with the creative arts, but but they're important, including entertainment lawyers, including accountants. They also make the scene happen. So it's pretty humbling when you see the scene on screen, you see how good it is. And uh, you just think back to your, say, you know, your 20 words on a page that you might've written two years ago. Hmm. Um, and that was the first domino in this, 
magical domino run that you now see unfolding in front of you. Uh, it's a pretty special feeling. Yeah. Has it opened you up to writing more for film? Like, do you want to adapt more of your own work for the screen so that you can have that that feeling? Oh, you tempter. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I'm a novelist. It is what I do best. Um, screenwriting, it, it, I really enjoy spending time in this world uh, and learning from screenwriters. Uh, whether I'd want to do it completely on my own. Uh, I, think as, uh, I think my answer is as a part of a team where the chemistry is great, uh, where the chemistry is as good as the pit, then, then yeah, sure. Uh, on my own, however, I mean, I've also seen uh, just a reflection of a reflection of studio politics, and it's really not for the faint-hearted. And I, I, um, I would not last five minutes in that shark tank if I was there on my own. I'm afraid. Uh, so as long as I could, as long as I could be insulated and uh, just do the uh, just do the creative parts, then then yeah, maybe. Uh, I, uh, I certainly wouldn't rule it out, but um, but you have to have the chemistry right other, um, between you and your co-writers. Otherwise, the same reason that it's such an enjoyable, uh, that it's such a heavenly process um, would uh, kind of, those reasons would flip, and it would get pretty hellish pretty quickly if the chemistry wasn't right. So you're saying you'd rather be a band member than a solo artist on in, on films? For sure, yeah. every <laughs> single time. Yeah. Cool. David, thank you so much for, for being here to talk and congratulations on your new book on, on Utopia Avenue. Oh, thank you very much indeed. Um, I've really enjoyed speaking with you. That's the Rolling Stones with Gimme Shelter. When we asked David Mitchell what song we should play at the end of the interview, that's the track he chose. So uh, DJ David Mitchell, also author, his new novel is called Utopia Avenue, and it is out now. I'm Talia Schlanger, in for Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're about to hear from Alessia Cara. She's a musician from Brampton, Ontario. She's had a pretty spectacular few years. Not that long ago, she was living with her parents, singing songs in her bedroom, and pretty quickly, she was winning Grammys, touring the world. Alessia was supposed to host the Junos this year, back before COVID-19 changed everyone's plans. But she's found her way back to the momentum she had going. She has a new EP out today. It's called This Summer, Live Off the Floor. And you got to hear this album. She revisits some of her biggest hits, but with a bit of a plot twist. And there's another layer to the release. With the world in the state that it's in, Alessia knew she wanted to step up, so she's donating all her proceeds from the record to save the children. Here's Alessia Cara to tell you more about it. Hey, this is Alessia Cara, and my new EP, Live Off the Floor, is out today. Um, this EP came about because um, I put out an EP last year called This Summer with studio versions of these songs. Um, and we shortly after decided to do this really cool thing where we called in a bunch of musicians. We recorded a bunch of takes of these songs live and picked the best takes to uh, create a project 
But it's crazy because as, you know, the date was getting closer, like or the date of release was getting closer, the world started getting more crazy and more um, challenging and difficult, um, you know, like with COVID and Black Lives Matter and all the things that were being uncovered about indigenous communities in Canada, where I'm from, Yemen, all the horrible things happening in the world were really coming to light. Um, I, I was just learning so many different things about the world. And I was thinking, well, okay, how can I use this project to help as many people as possible and as many communities as possible? Um, and in thinking about it, Save the Children not only has emergency funds for so many different pockets of vulnerable communities, across so many countries, but they also help specifically children, which I think is so important because I was thinking about, well, we will not see a better world if we're not educating and protecting the kids who will one day be the leaders of the world and the kids who will one day, you know, hold the torch. So um, I thought that would be the perfect way to, to do my part and help in as many ways as I can. The song from the EP you're about to hear is called Ready. I wrote this song when I was in the shower one day um, and I was really thinking, I think being in the shower is some of my most pensive times for me. Um, so I was I was thinking about a particular situation um, that not only happens to me, but I think to a lot of us where people just aren't on the same page as us. And in this particular scenario, the person I'm talking about um, just evidently wasn't or isn't ready to be with me or isn't ready for me at all in any in any way. And this song is about that realization. Like, you know what? It's not me, it's not you. It's just that we're not on the same page. Because um, I think as, as young women or just as people, we sometimes blame ourselves for things um, and think like, well, what's wrong with me? But the reality is, is that sometimes people just aren't ready. And that's, that's okay, it has nothing to do with you. It's not anyone's fault. It's just that people are in different stages of life. Um, and in this scenario, you know, I was in a, a different stage in my life than this person. And while it was painful and difficult to have to say that, um, it's the truth and life, life goes on. What a staggering talent. That's Alessia Cara with Ready, and that's recorded live, man, from her new EP called This Summer Live Off the Floor. It's out today with proceeds going to the charity Save the Children. I'm Talia Schlinger in for Tom Power. It's not easy when everyone around you has put you on a pedestal. The movie Loose explores the intense pressure that brings, especially when you're growing up. The main character, also named Luce, is a former child soldier from Eritrea, and a liberal white couple adopts him and brings him to Arlington, Virginia, when he's just 10 years old. Luce becomes this model student, kind of a poster boy for a young black man who has excelled but the movie unfolds into a really tense psychological thriller. There's an incident at school. 
people start to question Luce's integrity, and this ideal world starts to fall apart around him. Julius Ona is the director of Luce, and I spoke with him last summer when his movie came out. You'll hear us talk a lot about racism, violence, and the political climate in America. It feels especially relevant these days. Luce is a hard film to talk about without spoilers, so I'll just say that things take a dark turn for Luce when he submits a paper in his history class, and I asked the director, Julius, to start us off by talking about the importance of the paper. So he's assigned a paper by his uh, teacher in school, uh, Harriet Wilson, who's played by Octavia Spencer. Um, he's a senior, and it's uh, you know one of those uh, sort of term papers where uh, you're given a certain amount of free reign. In this case, it's to pick anybody you want to from 20th century history or politics. And he chooses to write his paper um, uh, about a post-colonial revolutionary thinker, France Fanon. And he essentially writes this controversial piece that talks about justifying political violence and radical acts of violence. Now, of course, in a moment uh, like the one we are in in America where uh, we have so much violence in schools and public spaces, um, uh, you know, him writing this despite the fact that he's this poster boy um, really alarms this teacher. Um, and then, you know, uh, a certain instinct kicks in knowing her knowing what his history is coming from a background of violence. And, and it really kind of kicks off a series of events after she searches his locker and, and finds something in there that's dangerous that uh, uh, turns everybody involved's lives upside down. Yeah, just to exemplify the tension that you mentioned between these two characters, I want to play a clip from the film. This is Luce, played by Kelvin Harrison Jr., talking with his history teacher, played by Octavia Spencer. Here we go. You wanted to see me? I wanted to talk to you about your assignment, Luce. What about it? Well, I'll just say, uh, after reading through it, I have some concerns about some of the arguments you made. Well, they aren't mine. Excuse me? The arguments, they're Franz Fanon's. I realize that. The assignment was to write in his voice. You really think I believe that stuff? Well, I don't know. So that was Octavia Spencer as teacher Miss Wilson and Kelvin Harrison Jr. as Luce in the new film called Luce, directed by my guest Julius Ona. So it's not just this this paper that the teacher is taking issue with. I think the clash that we're hearing between these two characters is is bigger than that. What is it really about? It's about so much. Um, you know, Harriet views Luce as this incredibly potent symbol in the community who has a potential beyond um, pretty much all his peers, but specifically beyond his African-American and black peers and, and his peers who might be coming from marginalized backgrounds. Uh, he's a success story both as an immigrant and as a person of color. And this is something she very much so wants to preserve. So the real debate they're having here is an as existential one about who you get to be in the world and how you define yourself. And over the course of the story, we come to realize that, you know, Harriet subscribes to a certain vision of what blackness should be and what uh, excelling as a minority should be and, and what ground rules one has to live by. And Luce wants to ask some really difficult questions about having the true freedom to define yourself on one's terms. And as that um, dialogue uh, comes to the fore over the course of the film, you, you kind of see these two characters who, in many ways, have justifications for what they believe. But as these two people clash, there's no easy answer uh, uh, to, you know, the differences in what they believe. Um in the in the film, Luce uh, sort of says he has two choices, like speaking about the the binary that that you're setting up, or these stereotypes or boxes that people feel like um, they are put in. And he says 
uh, at one point that he has two choices as a young black man, which are to to be a saint or to be a monster. Um, can you explain? Can you explain that a little bit? Well, when you look at uh, uh, you know kind of how the hierarchies of power work and and who gets access to rise above their lot, uh, you know, Luce, you know, through his experience, very clearly realizes that unless he's perfect. Unless he, you know, subscribes to this version of respectability politics that you see very often in the African-American community, that you have to be 10 times better than your white peers and you have to do everything by the book. You, you, you have to be beyond human to be considered human. Um, uh, there, the effect of that is actually dehumanizing. So you have that on one end. And, and the minute you make a mistake, the minute you cross a line, you immediately get put in the other box. And we see that um, – happen in the film uh, through a classmate of his, Deshaun, who, because of the background he's coming from, because of the way he speaks, because of his appearance, um, doesn't quite fit into uh, uh, that saint box that Luces fits into. So the minute he does something wrong, he's not given the same kind of consideration Luce is given, even by Harriet. Um, and and just by nature of having to live in that binary, it, it becomes another way to deny people uh, access to a full humanity. Yeah, what the film really highlighted for me also is that part of privilege is being allowed to have nuance in your personality, like, like privilege is being allowed to be a, a multifaceted person rather than having to be one extreme or the other. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so let's throw a- another factor into the mix, which is Luce's <laughs> white adopted parents, uh, who are played by Tim Roth and Naomi Watts. They're playing these really well-intentioned liberal people. What did you want to explore with their relationship to Luce? When intentions uh, aren't enough, when good intentions aren't enough, when, you know, as you said, uh, this idea of some people having the ability to live within that spectrum and some people not. And and it's a case where these parents, you know, want to believe they've done the right thing. They've brought this child uh, from a very, very difficult set of circumstances uh, to a place like Arlington, Virginia, where he's got access to education. He's got access to uh, the type of uh, treatment psychologically and emotional that hopefully can heal him from where he's coming from and, and, and is given enough love to succeed. But at what point um, is he being marginalized by the people who uh, claim to love him or who, who do love him and who do want to support him? Um, and, and in what point does he also absolve them of the responsibility of the greater work that needs to be done? So in many ways, what happens with this family becomes an interesting microcosm for, again, this conversation we're having about who truly gets to be human. So you have these adoptive parents who, you know, I earnestly, I, I do believe they're earnest in trying to do the right thing, but are not even fully aware uh, necessarily of the way they view their son and the, the, the impositions and the way they box in their son uh, and deny him the opportunity to fully self-actualize. Julius, even down to his name, he, they've, they've named him Luce because his original Eritrean name, um, he says that they couldn't figure out how to pronounce it. So when they adopted him, they gave him this new name. And he doesn't seem furious about it in the film, but I was so furious about it. Like, <laughs> I was like, that's the most insulting thing. Like, we're going to adopt you. Come on over. We. It's really hard to say your name, so we'll just give you a different one. And But be, but be a person, you know? I was just, ah, made me so mad. Sorry. It, you know, it's, it's, I'm originally from Nigeria. And 
<laughs> talk about a country that is the product of imperialism and colonialism and and um, uh, and that type of thinking, even again in the best intentions of it, right? Yeah, you know, maybe if we change his name, he'll fit in a little bit better. Maybe if we change his name, he'll you know uh, be able to adapt. It's so interesting to me, and again, you see that even in the continuum of somebody who was one of the models for the character and Barack Obama going from you know Bar- Barry back to Barack as he was trying to define himself, right? right? So it's a, it's a very really interesting question again in in the ways where even with the right instincts or at least the well-meaning kinds of instincts one has, there's this kind of myopia uh, uh, that's often the case in well-intentioned good liberal politics about uh, the way somebody feels can be uh, alienated and dehumanized. Yeah, you bring up Obama and and Luce is sort of compared to him uh, in in the film, I think by one of his classmates. As, as, by Deshaun, yeah. Yeah, by Deshaun as, as the example. And I think um, just President Obama is, is such a must be a complicated figure to relate to, I would think, um, for for a young black man who is is being told that that he is presidential, like like that. That's yeah. That's that's. I, I don't know. I don't know what my question is here, but I think he's a fascinating figure, probably in the development of the young black male identity in America. Yeah, and and I think for anybody who's a minority or has also been given that check marker of model minority. You know, one of one of the really galvanizing moments for me in wanting to tell this story, um, uh, and I, in fact, I started writing soon after President Trump's uh, inauguration was the vision um, uh, that was projected on you know TV and the internet all across the world of uh, uh, Obama and Trump in the White House during the transfer of power, and you're sitting there watching this, and you see one man who literally had to be perfect and scandal free to uh, arrive at the presidency and have eight years. And he's handing power over to a person who questioned his legitimacy as, as a human being, as a, as a president, as an American, literally on every level. And America decided, this is okay. This is, this is the next step that we need to take after, you know, supposedly electing our first black president and moving into this post-racial era. Um, uh, that was hugely impactful for me in terms of this conversation we're having about who has to be perfect and who can be whoever they want to be and still rise to the level of most powerful person in the world. Julius Ona is my guest here on Q. We're talking about his film, Loose. It's a dark psychological thriller that takes a deep dive into race, class, and, and some of our blind spots around those topics. So the, the story of Loose takes place in Arlington, Virginia, and the character Loose moves there from Eritrea when he's 10 years old. He's adopted. You also grew up in Arlington, Virginia, and you moved there from Nigeria when you were 10 years old. Obviously, these are very different countries of origin on opposite coasts of the continent of Africa. But could you relate to Luce's story and maybe in terms of the, the mask him having to put on? Absolutely. You know, on, on every level, um, you know, I, of course, I'm not coming from a history of violence that he was coming from. But the experience of being thrust into another culture, uh, being in Arlington, in many ways, you know, and I would say this to people, my parents 
uh, were my parents biologically, but I had a whole other set of parents, which were usually the white peers, mm-hmm. um, whose houses I would go to after school because, you know, my parents weren't familiar with, okay, this is the process of the different college applications and how you deal with that. Or, you know, it's like, who's going to tell you what you need to do to get ready for the prom and the cultural habits behind that. And all those things were things I had to learn usually from those other peers, parents. So, um, um, I very much so related to Luce's experience. And then on top of that, you know, not coming from a background that was African-American, I didn't have access at home to those kinds of things either that Luce doesn't have access to. So on so many levels, as you try to create that identity, um, I I had real parallels to um, some of the benefits of Luce's experience, but then also some of the challenges and hardships of Luce's experience and came, became keenly aware of the mask that I needed to wear to uh, also be able to thrive and succeed in a hyper-competitive academic environment um, like some of the very good public schools that exist in Arlington. Yeah, you described uh, earlier needing to be beyond human to be considered human, like needing to be this just incredible, exceptional achiever in order to be on par with, with peers who are not people of color. How did you navigate that pressure in your own life and were you ever like resentful of that? You know, I when I was in high school, I was not as smart as Luce was um, and certainly not as well-read. You know, I was not reading Frantz Fanon as a senior in high school. Um, so I didn't even have the vocabulary to fully understand some of the challenges that were being put in front of me. But as I grew older and, you know, became exposed to more uh, uh, especially black psychological and philosophical thought um, uh, and read, you know, Dubois and Malcolm X and read plays by Leroy Jones and start to understand that experience and, and, and other books. Then I started to reflect back on what actually was happening on in high school and started to unpack those things. You know, there's a scene in, in uh, the movie that is directly influenced from a moment I had when I was in a chemistry class during my senior year and somehow the topic of race came up and, and a student who was actually Filipino-American said, oh, but Julius isn't black. <gasps> um, um, in the middle of class and nobody reacted and, you know, I, I just, it was one of those things, the moment just kind of went by and it wasn't until years later that I started to unpack it and I realized what was happening there, what was being said. Well, what, um, sorry, and, what was happening? What was being said? What, what does that mean to you? That you don't conform to the stereotype that 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 you're acceptable because uh, uh, you know you're you're not like them essentially you're you're not a bad black you're a good black you're one of us you're in the club um, uh, but you know as you start to unpack that you also realize you know you could easily get disinvited from the club uh, when somebody chooses uh, that you're no longer a good black. Um, uh, and, and that, you know, we don't even see, we don't see you fully as human. We see you as a version of what we want you to be that makes us comfortable. Um, and in many ways, you know, I think some of those people view that as a compliment. There's this incredible, oh, you know, oh. moment recollected also in, in, um, you know, Ezra, uh, I'm forgetting his last name, but the OJ Simpson documentary that was done where OJ is in the country club and, and, you know, a woman, you know, comes in and, and says, uses the N-word. And she says, here's all these N-words in, in the club. And there's O.J. Simpson. And what he loved about it was that, you know, he was O.J. He wasn't black. You know, so I think for some people, they find that as um, as as a way of saying you're better than the typical 
uh, member of your group, but for Luce and, and for me as well, that's that's not acceptable, and 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 that's not a way we want to view ourselves because uh, you know, much like everybody contains multitudes, um, there's more than one experience within any one group. I truly can't imagine something more insulting. Um, I this is clearly such personal subject matter for you, and yet you've said that you didn't want this film to be didactic. So what did you want the film to do instead? I wanted the film to ask questions. You know, we've had, and especially in the moment we're in right now, I think Obama's presidency really brought so much to the forefront. And then Trump's presidency following after that, uh, in many ways, almost feels like an inevitability because, you know, and I think this is one of the, the, the beautiful things about him being in that position of power. It forces you then to start contending with how power and privilege works when somebody is in that position who is not historically uh, uh, been there. And We've seen a lot of movies and stories and plays and, and whatnot, a lot of culture that's been created that tries to explore this stuff. And often it's the case that it tries to synthesize everything down into an easily digestible message or kind of moral that one should walk away with. And I just – in my experience of life, it doesn't work that way. And there's something really kind of uh, you know disingenuous about that and also dangerous about trying to oversimplify what are hundreds and thousands of years of such complex issues around identity and gender and race and especially in the moment we're living now into something you can package in two hours and then, you know, if we just did that, everything would be fixed. And frankly, we've been telling a version of that story for the last 40 or 50 years and guess what? Everything hasn't been fixed. Yeah. So it, it feels like it's really important to be coming at this from a perspective of, of real humility and openness and a willingness to stand outside of what one assumes they know and start to ask real questions about the systems of power and privilege that exist. Before we go, Julius, I read that, that you studied film at NYU and that Spike Lee was the executive producer of your film thesis, which ended up turning into a, a feature film. I'm just I'm curious to know what's one thing that he taught you that you always bring to set with you? You have to get it. <laughs> you have to get the thing, you know, um, and that's a, a constant refrain that, you know, has only been more pronounced as I move forward with each film because I thought I understood what that meant. And it wasn't until um, really until loose that I fully understood what that meant, which is if, if, if you're not sure that you have the thing, you have to keep on doing it. <laughs> and I think that's a real testament to Spike. And, you know, I owe a tremendous amount to him. I, I interned for him when I was 19 years old. And then when I went back to grad school at NYU, he helped me make my first feature and, and get my foot in the door in the career. And he's done this for so many other filmmakers. There's an incredible generosity from that human being uh, uh, and kindness. And um, I, I can't thank him enough. Well, Julius, I think we got the thing. Oh, fantastic. I'm glad. <laughs> we got the thing. Congrats on your film. And, and thank you so much for being here on Q. Thank you so much, Talia. Julius Ona is the director of the film Loose. I spoke with him when the movie came out last year. You can stream Loose now over Amazon Prime. That's it for Q, the podcast today on Monday. Tom Power is the dude back in this chair, and he will be talking to the chicks. See what I did there? I'm sorry, Tom. <laughs> uh, the chicks who you might know as the Dixie Chicks, they will talk to you about why they've chosen this moment in time to change the name that they've been using for decades. And they'll talk about the moment in 2003, really the handful of seconds that changed 
the rest of the course of their lives and careers uh, and, and their band. So stick around for that. Thanks for listening. I'm Talia Schlanger in for Tom Power, and this is Q. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.